Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's The Argument. I'm Jane Poston. It's very likely that you are unhappy with the economy right now. Americans, broadly, feel almost as bad about the economy as they did during the Great Recession of 2008. But it's not 2008. Today's national unemployment rate fell below 4%. April marked the 12th straight month of job gains in excess of 400,000. 21 states and 35 cities and counties will be starting the new year by raising the minimum wage. So why does everything feel so weird? Inflation. Most Americans believe that inflation is one of the biggest problems facing the country right now. And we see it everywhere. Prices are up more than 8% from this time last year. And lawmakers are arguing about what to do about it. Lawmakers and business reporters, like my colleague, Peter Coy. I am a writer for the opinion section of the Times, and I have a newsletter on economics and business. And Alexandra Skaggs. So I cover bond markets and the economy for Barron's and writing about the Federal Reserve, writing about what it means for markets and also just for normal people and what they should do with their money. So to get started, Peter, on a scale of one to 10, how bad is the economy right now? And what does that mean? Okay, so a high number means bad, right? Yes. We're saying like 10 is in my head, like it's 1931. Mm. Get yourself to California. I say I put it around a five, I guess. Uh, That's a wishy-washy answer, but somewhere in the middle, because I mean, as you just said, there are good things and bad things going on right now. Lately, there's been a lot of focus on the bad things, the high inflation, and not as much focus on the good things like the low unemployment rate. But they're both true and they're both important. And Alexandra, where would you put the economy right now on a scale of 1 to 1931? So uh, this might be the wrong answer for a podcast called The Argument, but I'm also (laughs) going to say Uh 5, but for a different reason. That's okay. Honestly, I'm just glad you didn't say 10 because I was was like, oh boy. (laughs) That would be bad. No, I, I don't think we're there. I think it depends on who you are, right? Like, it's really, really interesting because... After the pandemic, if you were relatively wealthy, if you could work from home, it was pretty nice in 2021. And actually, everything kind of felt okay. Whereas during the pandemic, you know, in 2020 and 2021, if you worked at a meatpacking plant, life was not good for you. It was really tough. And now I I think that we're having some sort of evening out of that. Like wages in the bottom tier of workers are getting a lot better. We had a lot of fiscal stimulus, and by that I mean just like the pandemic relief money. The job market has gotten a lot better. You know, we're seeing unionization drives. So, like, I think that those wages improving have been part of what's driving some of this inflation. But then, you know, people are having a harder time affording gas and groceries just because, like, there is so much more demand from everyone instead of just like the bottom quartile of the economy 
scrambling and like working for pennies. Okay, so you both gave the economy a five on the scale between everything's great and it's 1931. And it sounds for Alexandra, it's because we've seen the stimulus checks and accompanying inflation hitting low and high income groups differently. And for you, Peter, I think that the middling grade has to do more with a possible recession. Yeah. People, when they talk about how to cure inflation, they talk about, well, let's slow the economy down. Let's find ways to raise interest rates. So borrowing's more expensive. People borrow less, then they won't be spending as much. Corporations won't be investing as much. Sort of like cooling things off, and that'll take away the inflationary pressure. But the high inflation itself hurts people, takes away their spending power. So there's a depressionary effect of high inflation all by itself. And if you start raising interest rates, you're compounding that. So there's a real risk that in trying to quell inflation, the Federal Reserve will inadvertently cause a recession. You know who's very aware of this? Jerome Powell, chair of the Federal Reserve. If you listen to his comments, he's not expressing enormous confidence that he, the Federal Reserve, can get this job done. He talks about there being a path to success where they manage to keep the economy going while lowering inflation. But that means there's also a path to (laughs) failure where they go too far. In fact, history shows that that's often what happens. One of the reasons that the banks, including the Federal Reserve, try not to let inflation get high is that they know they're not really good at bringing it back down again without causing a recession. And there are people who would say, well, fine, that's what needs to happen. If that's what it takes to extinguish this high inflation, so be it. And I'm just not willing to go that far. So Peter is saying that by raising interest rates, the Fed could trigger a recession because it would mean people would borrow less and invest less, so markets fall. And a recession, I do know this, would be bad. Alexandra, is that what you see? Peter and I do broadly agree that the Fed's tools are like very blunt and not especially helpful in this case. But again, I think we sort of differ on the mechanics because, you know, the way that I see it is that the Federal Reserve raises rates and that leads to layoffs. Yeah, it sounds to me like anything that the Federal Reserve would do to try and limit inflation would make life worse for people. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about the markets in particular is the way that people see this a lot of the time is that the Fed raises rates, markets sell off. That's bad for economic growth. But I I think that there's a step missing in that path, I guess, where it's bad for economic growth when stocks sell off because companies go into cost-cutting mode. It is pretty clear that like, because their fiduciary responsibility is to their shareholders, they're going to cut costs basically everywhere before they ask their shareholders to like make a little less money. And that means that when the Fed raises rates, they lay people off. So I think that that is another way that this sort of echoes through the economy. And I think that talking about it in this really broad sense can sometimes make it seem like magic, right? Like, okay, the Fed raises rates and they, you know, the economy just magically slows down. But it it really happens because companies are just cutting jobs. 
Yeah. Is that the difference here that like if we want more people to be employed, we should be prepared for higher prices. And if we want lower prices, we should be prepared for fewer people to be employed. So there's this whole big question about whether you can sort of buy higher growth through allowing higher inflation. And it was kind of decided that in the long run, you probably can't, that all you get by trying to get the economy to exceed its speed limit over the long run is more inflation and no more jobs. But in the short term, there definitely is a trade-off. And the dovish view is that by trying to raise interest rates, the Fed is solving a problem that is already sort of on the way to being mostly solved by itself. Probably financial conditions did need to tighten. They were too loose. I tend to be on the dovish side. But if you look at how much inflation is really embedded in expectations, because inflation is one of these things that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you expect prices to be higher, you'll behave in a way that will cause them to be higher. You'll be less resistant, for example, to paying more for stuff. Companies will charge more because they expect their costs to go up and you get this vicious cycle of rising prices. So the Fed pays very close attention to what expectations of inflation are, not just what the current inflation rate is. And if you look at expectations, they're not all that high. For example, the University of Michigan does a survey of consumers, shows the long-run inflation expectations still down around 3% versus the 8% that we've been hitting in the last couple of months. You look at the bond market, and these are people who put you know billions of dollars on the line. That's what Alexander writes about all the time. But what we're seeing now is that the bond market is not nearly as alarmed about inflation as you would guess from looking at these headline numbers of 8%. The bond market is more like that Michigan survey where they're expecting inflation to drop quite dramatically over the coming months. So I'm optimistic myself that that's, I think they're right. And in fact, until very recently, if you had been talking to me and Alexandra a couple of years ago, you would have been asking us, why is inflation too low? This is a big problem. We need to get inflation higher. Well, we shot right past the 2% goal from underinflation to overinflation. But I think that there are still forces at work in the economy that will bring inflation back down and to a very acceptable range. And people can all kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Alexandra, what do you think? Should we be breathing a sigh of relief? Should I be feeling this optimistic? Am I optimistic now? <laughs> You know, I hope Peter's right. I really do. If Peter's right, this is just a passing trend and prices will come down and everything will go back to normal. Uh, What I worry about is that corporate power and companies' ability to raise prices because there is so much more concentration. Like the baby formula shortage is a really good example of this, right? Baby formula prices are really high because there are four companies in the United States that make the vast majority of baby formula. And the more power, you know, soft power, hard power, pricing power, whatever you have as a company, the more likely you are to be like, oh, this isn't that big of a deal because guess what? We have 50% of the American market. So, like, I think that this has been a blind spot for policymakers. And that's sort of the blind spot that I worry about in terms of what's going to take this sort of temporary pandemic inflation and turn it into a persistent lasting inflation. 
Alexander, are you saying that if inflation stays high, it's because companies are doing it? I mean, not in a like working together in a giant cabal kind of way, but in a we would like to make as much money as humanly possible. So charging you $18 for a sandwich that would have cost $12 is nice for us. Yeah, because they can get away with it, basically. There's nothing wrong with a profit motive by itself. I mean, it's human nature that you're going to want to make as much money as you can. The problem is when companies get their grips on the levers of power, and that could be through campaign contributions or just knowing people at regulatory agencies or whatever the case might be, and they do what's called rent-seeking. They find a way to go beyond what the free market would allow. They restrict competition. So excellent example of that is restricting competition from imports. The consequences of that is that when there's not enough infant formula being made in the United States because of a plant shutdown, there's a shortage. If it were more of a global market, if there were more free trade, we wouldn't have that problem. So coming back to the point, it's not the profit motive. It's the use of other forces, political forces, to try to get an edge, get one over on other corporations and the general public. Okay. I wanted to talk a little bit about the pandemic and stimulus checks and things like that, because I think that you might differ on this a little bit. It sounds to me, Alexandra, that you are concerned about the immediate issue of inflation and how it's impacting people's daily lives. But it sounds to me like the inflation came in part because of stimulus that many people really needed. Alexandra, with regard to inflation, is there something that the government should have done differently that would have prevented this while also supporting people in the midst of a pandemic? Because it doesn't seem like to me there were that many available options. Yeah, I'm on the team where I think that the alternative was way worse. So, you know, if we had had mass layoffs, mass economic suffering, I just think that there are other options now to manage inflation. I agree, Alexandra. I think that probably all that money that went into people's pockets has been a contributing factor to inflation. But there are other factors that are completely unrelated. They happen to be related to the pandemic, but they tend to be more on the supply side. So the uh, fact that factories shut down and so we had underproduction of critical components like computer chips, and now we have the war in Ukraine disrupting things. Oh, and the big one now, of course, is China with its zero COVID policy and Shanghai almost shut down and Chinese economy showing signs of shrinking latest data. All these things are contributing to inflation and they're nothing to do with those checks that Trump and Biden sent out to the public. So one of the interesting things that I've noticed in the economic data for March and April is that Early on, the early days of the recovery from the pandemic, hotel rooms were like 20% more expensive than they were the year before, of course, because nobody wanted to stay in hotels when there was a global pandemic. But more recently, it's starting to shift into services. And that's really interesting. The April inflation data was stronger than expected, and that showed up in rent costs and also what they call like services more broadly. That to me is really interesting and a little worrying because if it's goods inflation, if it's like the stuff you buy, like a car, a piece of furniture, 
that makes a lot of sense to me, right? But when it starts to move into services, things start getting a little more complicated and that is a little bit more lasting traditionally. You have a lot of thoughts on the role that corporations Mm -hmm. have played here. And President Biden tweeted last week, you want to bring down inflation? Let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Now, one, what does corporate wealth have to do with inflation? And how much power do they actually have in the inflation that we're experiencing across the economy? So this has been a really big debate all over parts of the internet. And there are two pretty clear facts here. And that's that inflation is high and switching into a mode that is making it look more persistent and profit margins are at all time highs still. And that is really interesting. And I think that a lot of the debate there is about, okay, well, like did corporate profiteering or price gouging cause all of this inflation? I'm not sure that you can say that, but like, I think that it's pretty clear that there are contributions and it's not even necessarily price gouging. That type of contributing factor, I think, has been a little under-addressed. And it's been interesting to see people say like, oh, well, that's ridiculous because, you know, companies raise prices and then get punished by consumers. It doesn't really always show up that way. And like, it's not always just higher prices that drive inflation. Yeah, I actually, I have a thought on that. Jane, it's a really good question. And I agree with Alexander, this lighting up the uh, Twitter. You can find <laughs> long debates. Right. You know, is price gouging by corporations responsible for today's inflation? And the people who say yes, you know, have a point. And the people who say no have a point. But I come down to say it is a factor. But I think it's more like opportunistic. It's like if there's a general move higher in prices, it's a great time for you to raise your price. Because if prices are not rising and you go ahead and raise your price, you stand out like a sore thumb and everybody says, hey, look, this company's raising its prices. But if other prices are going up, you can kind of slide in along with everybody else, get that price increase, increase your profit, and it doesn't stand out and you get away with it. It's not like this diabolical scheme where a bunch of corporations got together and said, ha ha, now's our chance to uh, screw the consumer. Very few companies have that kind of pricing power. They will, however, seek higher profits whenever they can, and now's a good time for them to be doing that. Look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash gamesapp. 
talk now about what politicians are doing at both the state and federal level about inflation, whether it's tax holidays or tax rebates or tax something or another or another stimulus check. Alexandra, what do you think of the solutions out there? Yeah, I do agree with Peter that like having a really hawkish Fed right now just seems like taking this weird economic environment and just like taking a baseball bat to it and being like, okay, well now it's all bad. So it's like, okay, how does that fix things? I would be interested in more creativity about potential solutions outside of monetary policy. I just can't imagine like that it wouldn't be possible to have more targeted inflation relief because, you know, everyone talks so much about, okay, well, let's make sure our stimulus is targeted. Let's make sure our stimulative policies are targeted in certain ways. So why don't we have disinflationary policies targeted as well? You know, just even like raising taxes on top tax brackets, that would slow down inflation in certain ways. Because if you raise those taxes hypothetically, then those companies or entities would be less able to spend. Yeah. And then that spending slows down. And But the corporations could very well respond to that by being like, well, screw you. Let's raise prices more. I actually wrote a newsletter recently about the tax cuts that states are, are putting through. And, you know, I, I zeroed in on Ron DeSantis, Republican governor of Florida, who during the pandemic assistance was was worrying that there was going to be negative consequences from all this handing out so much money, you know, talked about inflation. And so now he's saying, see, I was right. And yet Florida's solution is to give out more tax cuts, which goes in that same direction. So if it was a bad thing then, why is it a good thing now? No, it's definitely, it's definitely not. And also states are saving, you know. I mean, it's true that states are different from the federal government in one key respect is that they're supposed to balance their budgets. They can't do a lot of deficit spending. And they're also not supposed to build up huge surpluses. So they do need to do something with their money and they're choosing to disgorge it in tax cuts. But the alternative would be to you know, put money in rainy day funds, to do more infrastructure, to rehire people critically needed for social service jobs. Yeah, it doesn't have to be tax cuts. I'm curious what you think, Peter, of non-monetary policy solutions, whether this is aimed at corporations. What are your thoughts on that? Is there a thing to do that is good? I mean, talking about creative solutions, Alexandra mentioned that if you think that fiscal policy is overly stimulative, then you could make it less so you could raise taxes. That is going to be very unpopular. People already feel squeezed And now you're going to tell them, okay, and we're going to raise your taxes. Uh, It's tough to imagine Congress ever doing such a thing. Although if they chose to focus on just the richest, that might be good for balancing the budget, but it's not actually going to help very much on the inflation front because rich people spend a tiny fraction of their income. They just have more than they could ever use. It's the poor people who are living, you know, paycheck to paycheck who tend to spend a lot when you give them more money to spend is because they have so many needs. I would go back to the solution that we've talked about of trying to make the economy more competitive. So to take away the ability of companies to, we're not going to even call it collusion. We're going to talk about it kind of 
coordinate price increases. That, however, is not something you can do immediately. That's sort of a project of years to decades. It's a good thing to do. It should be done, but don't expect it to have a huge immediate impact on inflation. I really hope time will help. I want Peter to be right. It would be great. You know, <laughs> like that would be wonderful. I will say you made a really good point, Peter, about how the rich are more likely to save. I also, you know, when we talk about savings, those savings are invested. I think it just might make it easier for things to become more competitive if you didn't have just this massive pile of cash sloshing around in investment markets, looking to maximize profits at every turn. You know, when people talk about a savings glut and the potential policy problems that come from that, like who saves, you know, the top quartile or 10%. We've talked a lot today about big entities, the Federal Reserve, Congress, corporations, and what the role is in this situation. But as an individual, as a, just a person listening to a podcast, as a person making a podcast, what do both of you think we should be doing? Like, should we be saving more, saving less, spending more, spending less? Like, what is good to do? And especially because a lot of people who are being hit hardest from this economy, they're not doing this because they're buying avocado toast. Mm -hmm. Avocado toast is delicious, and I had it yesterday. But, like, they are spending money on rent and food and trying to get the goods and services that every human being needs to get through life. So what are you doing? I'm asking my mom to ship us baby formula. <laughs> you know, probably get more involved in local mutual aid type of things. You know, like if we end up with too much baby formula, I'm going to try to donate it. I think in times like this, when things are so hard for like particular parts of the population, that's kind of all I can fall back on when it comes to what I'm doing with my money. But I think that trying to, I'm personally just like being pretty cautious and like, you know, this is also with the big disclaimer that I graduated college in 2009. So I always think the next big crash so did is around I. the corner. Yeah. We are broken people yeah, exactly. as a result. Yeah. Like there's a lot, of, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, this would be, you know, if it does go into a recession, this would be my second, yeah. se second yeah. recession. Unless we're- no, be your Third, yeah, but, right? Because yeah. we had 2007, 2009. Right. Then we had the terrible, sharp, but short recession in yeah. 2020. Yes. Pandemic recession. Right. So this would be number three oh, for Oh, fantastic. You. What yeah. are, but Peter, as someone who thinks about this all the time, how has it changed what you do as an individual? Because I feel like, you know, as an individual, there's not much we can do. Right. There isn't very much. You just want to be sensible. So this is probably not a great time to be selling a lot of stocks if you have them, because the market's down a lot. And on the other hand, if you're somebody who is, really needs the money, maybe you shouldn't have invested so much in stocks in the first place. The problem is that people have already made mistakes, right? So I used to have a boss who told, used to talk about the theory of the second mistake. It's not the first mistake that kills you, it's the second mistake. So don't make that second mistake. Don't compound what you've done and make matters worse. So nothing extreme, I would say, at this stage. Peter, Alexandra, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Peter Coy is a writer for the New York Times Opinion section. Alexandra Skaggs is a senior writer for Barron's. For more on the economy, if you're interested, you can read 
unemployment is low. That doesn't mean the economy is fine. By Peter Coy in the New York Times opinion section. For a different angle, read How Should Democrats Respond to Rising Inflation and High Gas Prices? By John Cassidy in the New Yorker. And listen to Making Sense of a Complicated Economy, an episode of Econofax podcast. You can find links to all of these in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elise Gutierrez, and Vishaka Durba. Edited by Alison Bruzek and Annabelle Bacon. With original music by Isaac Jones and Pat McCusker. Mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Mary Marge Locker. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta, with editorial support from Christina Samuluski. Our executive producer is Irene Noguchi.